Today, uh, our theme is moving from darkness into the light. And I know that we've all been there. We've been in periods where we're in the pit. We're in the dark place. We're in a cave of despair and feel hopeless. But there is a way out. And today, uh, you're going to hear two testimonies. And we are going to share with you some periods in our life that were pretty dark and pretty grim. And we're going to share how we move from that place into a place of, of light and a place of hope. And so uh, we're going to begin with Susan Thurman, who is a renowned educator in our area. She was, we have known each other for decades uh, through the school system. She was a wonderful teacher and coach at Red Bank High School. And then she and I both had a position called a, uh, a what are we? We were a lot of change coach. Change coach. It's been a long time since we did that. And so we worked on high school reform together. And then uh, she has been through a really rough patch over the last couple of years, and she's going to share that, and then I'll be coming back to share with you my story. So, Susan, please share with us. Thank you, Kathy. Um, it is a, a truly a, a privilege for me to do this and uh, to be here with you today. Like many of you, I have had, um, I have several titles by which I'm known. Uh, Mrs. Tom Thurman, mom, granny, sister, coach, teacher, etc. But this year I added another title, uh, Stroke Survivor. I am the president, which is another title, of the adult Sunday school class at Concord Baptist Church. And in my opening each Sunday, I give a short devotion. I usually think about it throughout the week, get my topic, and then sit down on Saturday morning at my computer early and get it uh, written. So on Saturday, January 23rd, I sat down at my computer to write my devotion, and I had decided that that day I would talk about the 23rd Psalm. Uh, after a year which had been tumultuous for many reasons, I really thought this scripture would be a good reminder for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. I noticed the day before that things were a little funny. My lips felt funny, my tongue felt funny, and my face on the left side felt numb. But uh, I just thought it possibly could be my teeth, but my teeth didn't hurt. So I didn't feel bad. I just thought it was something weird. And if I got a good night's sleep, everything would be okay and I would be fine the next morning. Well, as I was typing my devotion for Sunday school, um, I thought, this, this seems a little worse. I think I'm going to call my dentist. Of course, dentists don't work on Saturdays. So I called and left a message and I told her what my issues were. And she called me back in a couple of hours and she said, Susan, if your tongue and your lips are numb, it is not your teeth. Go to the hospital right now. Well, I was a health educator. It never dawned on me this could be a stroke. I thought, I've got Bell's palsy. It's kicking in. So we'll go to the hospital. So we went, and this was right in the middle of COVID. And my husband had to stay in the parking lot. And I went in, they did a CT scan, and the doctor came back and said to me, uh, you have had a stroke and a brain bleed. 
We're sending you to the stroke unit at Erlanger, and the ambulance will be here momentarily. I was shocked and, and uh, about the whole thing. So um, when the uh, ambulance got there, the person who was caring for me got on the phone and she called Erlanger, and I never will forget what she said. I have a 72-year-old female uh, that has a stroke and a brain bleed. Her blood pressure is 202 over 154. We will be there in five minutes. And then she said, Joe, turn it on. So the siren starts, the speed goes, and we go down to Erlanger. I've never had blood pressure issues, ever. The only medicine I take are drops for glaucoma in my eyes. I've never had heart issues, so what is happening with me right now? But in that ambulance, all I could think of was my father, who had died of a stroke and a brain bleed. On July 1st in 2009, he had a stroke. On July 2nd, his left side was paralyzed, and he was blind, and two days later, he died. I truly thought at that time, I was on my way out of this world. When we arrived at the ER, I have never felt so alone. There was no one there who loved me except the person who loves me most. It was then that I realized that the devotion that I had written that morning for my Sunday school class was not for them, it was for me. And I began to whisper the 23rd Psalm. They did another CT scan and then put me in a room in the ER until a bed was available in ICU. As I sat in that room all alone, I felt the numbness in my face begin to go up around my eye and above my eye. And I, got in, I was just getting in a panic mode and I cried out, Jesus, I need help now. I picked up the remote to push the button to call the doctor or call the nurse, and before I could push that button, the door opened. A man walked in and said, I'm Dr. David Wallace, your neurologist, and you don't have to have brain surgery. I had never even considered that as a possibility at that point. But my first response to him was, Jesus just sent you through that door. And then I told him the story of my dad, he went on to explain to me that my stroke and brain bleed was not like that of my father's. I had been born with a cluster of abnormal capillaries in the base of my cerebellum, and after 72 years, they decided to bleed. And that was what caused the stroke. He said the bleeding had stopped, and I should make a full recovery, and the chances of it happening again were minimal. As soon as they could get me there, I would be going to ICU, and in the morning, I would have an MRI on my brain. But I still didn't feel bad, and other than the numbness, I had no other symptoms. And I can assure you, I was by far the healthiest person in ICU. Uh, after monitoring me and getting the other test results, the doctor came by and said, five more people are going to see you this morning. If we all agree, we're going to send you home today. And the reason, there were no rooms in the inn. 
the hospital was packed. I still didn't feel bad. And um, at, at that point, when I got home, I didn't feel great, but I just didn't feel bad. But the next day, the results of the stroke kicked in, and I began to think that death might be a better alternative. The extreme dizziness, the nausea, the headaches, and my, my inability to walk without assistance convinced me I was really sick. By that evening, all of these symptoms were uncontrollable, and so my husband called an ambulance to come again and take me to the ER. And that became my home away from home for the next four days. When the doctor came to see me the next day, the first thing he did was apologize for sending me home. And I asked him what was happening because I wasn't getting better, I was getting worse. And the stroke, is it still going on? What's happening? I just don't understand. And he said it would take time for my body to absorb the blood from the brain bleed. And uh, in the meantime, I would experience all of the symptoms that I was experiencing then. Darkness began to overcome me. I did go home at the end of the week, and I couldn't tell that I was any better at all. Home health care came for an evaluation on that Friday, and they said that uh, I would begin therapy on Monday. When the therapist came on Monday, the therapy that I did was to desensitize my eyes and my brain, and I did it from sitting in my chair. But when they came back on Wednesday, I had to do some things st standing up, and I failed miserably. What PE teacher and coach fails physical therapy? I was distraught, I felt terrible, and I was at my lowest point. I got a text from Susan Higgins that night asking how I was doing, and I'm afraid that I didn't do anything but complain to her. My pity party was at a high. She told me that sometimes we just have to take baby steps and when you take those baby steps, celebrate them. She was so encouraging, but I was nothing but a complainer. After all that she has been through, who in their right mind would complain to Susan Higgins? I just assumed I wasn't in my right mind at that time. But I called her my earth angel because what she said next jolted me into reality. She said, Susan, you have spent your whole career coaching girls to victory. Now it's time to coach yourself. Wow. At that point, I knew that I didn't have a burning bush through which God spoke to me. I had Susan Higgins. I sat in the darkness of my den that evening and I had a come to Jesus meeting with myself. I vowed that each morning I was gonna get up and I was gonna get dressed unassisted. I would put on my makeup and fix my hair like I was going somewhere. Uh, I would go to the table to eat my meals and when I got in my recliner, if I needed to get water or get up, I would try and attempt to do that by myself. I had a choice to make, stay in my recliner and become an invalid, 
or start to move and live again. This wasn't easy and everything took twice as long. But I soon began to get better and I began to celebrate the baby steps. Every morning in my devotions, I ask God to open windows of opportunity for me to share his love, to be a witness to someone who needs it, and to share the joy of my salvation. When the realization that God had used this means to answer my prayers, I tearfully thanked him for my stroke. I firmly believe that not all bad things are all bad. There is some good that can come from everything. Throughout this entire experience, I have seen God. I have seen him in the phone calls when the person called and said just what I needed to hear. I've seen him through encouraging text messages and emails. I've seen them through random acts of kindness shown to me and my family. I have seen him through the 129 cards I received in five weeks and 49 of them were from you. <clears throat> Many of you wrote scripture verses in them and that was exactly what I needed to hear that day. I have seen him in what looked to be a coincidence but nothing about the situation or the timing was coincidental. It was God at work. On January 23rd, I began that devotion that I wrote with this story and I would like to share it with you today. A Sunday school teacher decided to have her young class members memorize Psalms 23. She gave the youngsters a month to learn the verses and little Bobby was excited about the task but he just couldn't get it. And on the day that the kids were scheduled to recite Psalm 23 in front of the congregation, Bobby was so nervous, but when it was his turn, he stepped up to the microphone and said proudly, the Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I need to know. Many times when I had headaches or I just needed to rest, I would put on my earphones and listen to music. This song became my mantra, and each morning before I got up, and every night before I went to bed, I would ask Alexa to play Press On by Selah. And I would like to play that for you right now.
Hebrews 13, 5 tells us that God will never lead us or forsake us. It doesn't say that our lives will be easy. It doesn't say we won't be faced with trials. It just says that we can cling to the promise that he will be there in all situations. My prayer today for you is that when you face darkness in your life, that in Jesus' name, you too will find the strength to press on. say that um, when we do pass on that there will be a cloud of witnesses and um, the cloud of witnesses are watching <laughs> over us and encouraging us and Susan is one of those and do you know who encouraged her is one of our own too, Susan Higgins and she's listening to this right now um, but she couldn't be here and don't you want to be one of those encouragers and one of those in the cloud of witnesses? Such a beautiful testimony. Wow, you set me up to fail my own testimony, Susan. I don't know how I could get through mine. That was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Susan's story began in January of 2021. Mine goes back to 1995. Um, you know, I was living a really wonderful life. Uh, I was married and had two kids, and we were what we thought was upwardly mobile, and uh, we were church people, and life was just really going great. Our family was close, extended family, and life was just really good. And then I got a call from my sister, Lori Kelly. Uh, Lori worked for my doctor, and she called and said, we got a new x-ray machine and you're not due for a mammogram until next year because you had one the year before, but we would like for you to be our, our mammogram model and just let us test it out. And so uh, she said, we won't charge you for it, so why don't you come in and get tested? So I did, I got tested. And do you know, as can only happen when the Lord goes before you, they detected something in my, my left breast. And I uh, heard those words, uh, women, we don't ever want to hear, and that is, you have breast cancer. You know, it was that call from my sister that really led to saving my life uh, because I had a very uh, fast-spreading cancer, and I underwent uh, a mastectomy, and then I had um, several um, surgeries and had reconstructive surgery. But what was really more difficult to me during that year is that my marriage was in trouble. And it was an emotionally challenging and difficult year. That uh, episode in 1995 led to a series of what I call the Ds. Uh, that first one was disease, uh, being diagnosed with, with breast cancer. Um, I learned some real valuable lessons uh, during that time. And I learned then that I needed to constantly look forward 
I needed to constantly be prepared to, to move on and to, to seek out the help that I needed and to surround myself with the people I needed to be surrounded with. Um, I um, moved on to the next D the next year, which was divorce. And you know, that was a really difficult period. I had uh, two sons, uh, one was nine and one was uh, 14. And uh, it was hard uh, being the mother of two sons. And uh, the divorce was not easy. It was very painful. And um, I learned something through that too. I learned that I needed to practice reconciliation and I need to practice forgiveness. And I did that. And I, um, I forgave uh, my husband. I insisted that my boys maintain a relationship with their father. And to this day, um, my ex-husband and I are very uh, close. We uh, talk on the phone. He comes to all family functions. He's just a part of the family. And uh, we have moved through that period because that was a choice that I could make. And so uh, that divorce, while it was devastating, another D, it was not the end, and I'm so thankful for that. But during that period, um, I tend to do then what I do now, and that is I put myself into a project. And so my project was building a house. And so I, um, built a house with um, my, the help of my father and my brother and um, worked really hard on that. I, I did the design of it and I hired all the people to do it and had so much fun doing that. And one afternoon, the boys and I were over checking out the house and my son, who was at the time was in the fifth grade, ran up to what was going to be his bedroom and he leaned over the window and at, there at that window there were eight sheets of sheetrock. They weigh a lot. We're talking hundreds of pounds. He jostled that as he looked out the window and when he did, all of those sheets fell on top of him from the waist down. And I heard him scream and I heard the fall and my son at the time who was 15 and I ran up the steps and we saw that my Jordan was on the ground with the sheetrock on him and I was screaming, help, help. And my son, who was 15 and had a swimmer's body, <laughs> he wasn't a bodybuilder, he had a swimmer's body. Do you know, through the grace of God and the power that the Holy Spirit gives us, when our adrenaline is running, he picked up that sheetrock. And I was able to pull my son out. And he said, Mommy, I can't feel my legs. And our neighbors heard what was happening, called for an ambulance. That was the longest ride to a hospital I've ever experienced. They would not let me be in the back with my boy. I was in the front. And I prayed consistently, Lord, give him peace, deliver him heal his body, and we got to the hospital and learned that he had a broken pelvis. Well, the result of that was that um, it was the spring of the year and he didn't get to play, he didn't go to school, he didn't get to play his uh, baseball, he didn't get to swim, um, and he had to learn a lot of new things. He had to be carried everywhere. He used a wheelchair, then we graduated to crutches, 
and in the fall of the year, he went to uh, run. He was able to be released and run. It was another learning period. When disaster strikes, you get busy working to heal. And uh, our family supported us through all of that. Uh, that was a really rough two years period of one thing happening after another. Something that um, struck me was how people came to assist and to help. There, when when uh, we were trying to navigate through that, there was always somebody there to, to bring a meal or to, to take us somewhere or to do whatever we needed. And so we were navigating through that when in the hot summer of 1997, when uh, it was time to put the air conditioner in my new house, my brother uh, owned a heating and air conditioning company, and so he was taking care of all of that aspect for us. And so he was out on that July day and working to get the air conditioner in. My dad and I were inside, and I uh, ended up going home. It was Wednesday night. You didn't miss prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Don't care if you're building a house or what. We were getting ready to go to church, and my dad called and said, um, sis, he said, your brother, I think, has been electrocuted and we're headed to the ER. So um, at that point, my son was 16 and just learned to drive and he got in the car and headed straight to church because they were having a prayer meeting. He walked down the aisle straight to the pastor and told him what happened and they began to pray and the family gathered at the ER and we began to pray. And after church, the church came and we were all gathered there to pray. And sadly, my brother died of electrocution. That was the most devastating thing that our family had ever experienced. Um, it was hard to sort through the fact that my brother was doing me a favor and putting that in my home and died there as a favor to me. And I had to sort through a whole lot during that period. Do I stay or do I go? And, you know, I was getting all kinds of uh, feedback and advice. How can you stay in a place where that? And then I thought, but what if I don't stay? And then he died there in vain. And I don't even get to have that benefit of being there where he was working so hard for me. And I decided to stay. And as we went to the funeral, I had a crowd of friends from my Sunday school class who came to my house. They cleaned it all out, getting ready for the carpet to be finished. And they cleaned out my house. They put sod in my yard. Um, and I didn't have to, I didn't ask. They knew what to do. And I'm reminded that uh, that's what this group does. You just know what to do. And you reach out and you, you support people in love. And that's what they did, did for, for me and my family. Food. We, we thought we'd never end, end seeing the hams that came in. Uh, the food that, that they brought. And so we, we moved in and... But they had put the carpet in the steps going upstairs in my home, and there was a little mud spot 
as you got to the top of the stairs, and that was for my brother's boot. And you know, I left that there. I left it there. It was there for years. It's just that gentle reminder of what my sweet brother did. Well, um, we went forward, and, and I, I decided that um, I was good, just going to commit my life to my, my church and my children and my career, and that was my focus. And so uh, my house, by the way, was down the street from my sister, and we had lots of wonderful memories there. We had Friday night movie night. We uh, had so much fun. It was I had her kids at my house all the time, and we're doing wonderful, fun things. And and that that was my life. And I uh, didn't even consider going out on a date. I had two sons, for goodness sakes, and they said what they would do if I ever brought a man home. So <laughs> I was a little intimidated by that. Uh, but. Um, you know, during that time, I developed this carpe diem philosophy just to seize every day and to, to make every day count, make it to be meaningful. And you know, I even stenciled it on my wall in my den. And so I, as you would go outside onto the um, porch, right over it was carpe diem. My boys were so humiliated and embarrassed that their mother would put something like, I never lived that down. And I was proud of that. It was my philosophy of life. And they never let me forget that. Uh, but you know, at this point, I had faced this disease and divorce and disaster and, and death. And I knew that uh, life could turn at any moment. And I was also very aware that we lived in a broken world. And that world broke when Adam and Eve sinned in the, in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I knew that it could happen again at any time. And so we needed to make life very meaningful. And that got me through. And so years went by. And then I met Jerry. Wow, Jerry is somebody that I uh, began to date. We had known each other. And um, my ex-husband called me one day and said, Isn't this story weird? <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? And so I taught Jerry's daughter. I knew uh, Jerry's ex-wife and his, his, his ex-wife and daughters had traveled with me and we had gone, we'd been to Israel, we'd been all over and he asked me and I said, okay. I said, you get the approval of your ex-wife and your two daughters and I'll go out with they were all on board. The story just gets crazier, doesn't it? Our weird family. And so I dated Jerry, and we fell in love. Jerry was smart, and he was funny, and he was a man filled with faith. And uh, we had so much fun. And so we began to date, and finally all the pieces were coming together in my life. Well, uh, one weekend I had gone with a student group and came back and Jerry picked me up and his eyes were yellow and he said he had been taking naps and he just didn't feel well. And I said, we're going to the ER. And we went to the ER and we learned that some of his numbers weren't what they should be. And he got tested and we learned that Jerry had pancreatic cancer stage four incurable and inoperable. 
You know, this was a devastating diagnosis. Jerry uh, was such a man of resolve and courage, and we immediately began to move forward with hope. Uh, when you go through um, a cancer such as that, and it um, is inoperable and incurable, they immediately tried to connect you with counselors and therapists, and so they connected us with one, and, and they said the important thing is to have something to look forward to. And they said, do plan something that you can look forward to. So what we did, we had decided we were going to get married anyway, no matter what. We were in love, and whether we were married for oh, six months or 60 years, it just didn't matter. We, we wanted to be married, and so you know what we planned? In our uh, planning of hope, we planned a honeymoon, and we planned to have a honeymoon in Hawaii. And he talked about a place in Maui he wanted me to go, and we planned that. We got plane tickets, we got hotel reservations. We thought about that every day. Because listen, we have to live in hope when we're facing devastating news. We have to have a light at the end of the tunnel to work toward, to dream about, to propel us into the future. And we planned and we worked and we had such a good time. But after nine months of fighting and one bad um, outcome from chemotherapy after another, Jerry died, and he died at home, and he was surrounded by our family and his ex-wife and the daughters, and we were all there with Jerry for his homecoming. You know, in that relationship, I got those sweet stepdaughters. I raised two boys, and I got bonus daughters. That has been an interesting um, relationship over the years. We're still connected. But those uh, daughters chose a different life from what Jerry would have chosen for them. And as I was preparing to share this, I, I have shared my testimony many, many times over the years, and some of you could probably tell it for me. You've heard it before, but there is an interesting update. Um, one of the daughters, um, is lesbian and Jerry knew that before he died and it was a very hard thing for him to come to terms with it was very difficult uh, for him um, but I got a call I, I, as as we have been through the years I have loved her um, I have not set in judgment of her uh, she knew that I was a, one she could turn to and and we've talked over the years but uh, in the last couple of years she had gone kind of silent um, she had been married she married a woman and um, they uh, had a, a very difficult relationship and that ended in divorce and then um, she met another woman they live in California and my stepdaughter um, then decided that it's hard to even put this in, in words, but to transition to being a man. And so uh, my stepdaughter moved from having a female name to a male name, from being a she to being a he. 
and she called me um, a couple of weeks ago and she said, Kathy, I just wanted to talk to you and wish you a belated happy Mother's Day. She said, I tell my stepdaughters all the time about you. She said, I tell them what an influence you were to me as I was growing up. She said, um, I refer to you as someone who loved me, that didn't agree with me, but you loved me, and you encouraged me, and I talk about you. And she said, by the way, you know the PhD program I was in that I didn't finish because I was such a mess in my life? She said, I'm going through and getting my PhD again. And guess where I'm going? I'm going to a Christian university to get it. She said, see, I haven't given up on my faith. Now, this is a messy story. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, goodness. This transgendered person and faith, and it just seems so messy. And I congratulated her and told her how very proud I was of her. And she said, I'm getting my life together. You know, I don't understand the choices that he has made, but I love him. You know that I am the only parental influence he has. He lost his dad, and then years later he lost his mother. All the grandparents are gone, and I am the only parental influence. And as far as I know, the only faithful Christian influence. So what do we do when our life throws us something like that that's messy and that we don't agree with? You know, a lot of people would sit in judgment of me for keeping a relationship like that and, and not scolding or, or judging. But you know, we have a choice, don't we? And I'm loving him through it. Since then, we've texted, we've laughed, and I'm keeping that communication open because you see the progress that was already made. Love is hard, but it is necessary. You know, during all of this journey, uh, I have been unyielding in moving forward. I've written a book about it, Looking Forward. I've written a devotional book called Living Forward. My ministry is called Leading Forward because it's essential that we take our difficult spots, our dark periods, and find the light and find the hope and keep moving forward and being an influence that's positive and encouraging when it is so easy to give up and stay in the hole and stay in the pit. Well, my journey continued. Do you know through my relationship with Jerry, I came to Christ Church where he went. And I loved this church. A few months after Jerry died, the pastor here, Dennis Newman, was the pastor, and he called me one day. We had developed a wonderful relationship. He ministered to us all through Jerry's illness. Uh, he performed our, our wedding ceremony, and he called me uh, a few months later, and he said, Kathy, Will you come work for me here at Christ Church? Well, you could have blown me away. I had been an educator for 25 years, 
And he said, I said to him, Dennis, I have never been to seminary, and I have never worked for a church. And here's what he said, that's why I want you to come work for me. <laughs> he said, I want you to build a, a, a first-class education program in the way that you have worked in the education system for Hamilton County. I said, wow. You want me to transfer my skills in public education to Christian education? And he said, that's what I want. And I thought, this is amazing. So I left my 25 years uh, in public education, and I became, I became Christian education director here at Christ Church. And that has been the biggest blessing of my life when it comes to my career. I cannot tell you what, the growth that I have experienced since doing making that change. Uh, during that change, I was working on my doctorate and I switched my focus for my dissertation. And my dissertation was, uh, what is the effect on faith development in a church context? And so I, I learned so much about how we grow in our faith, and I am so happy that I answered that call because you know what it ended up doing? Giving me a platform to use all those messes that I had been through. It gave me the platform to be able to teach and to reach out to women, and as I began to do that, I thought, oh, goodness, these women have as many messes as I had. <laughs> And I began to talk to women, and I realized I don't have all the skills that I need. And so I, because I'm a high achiever and a choleric, I needed to learn something else. And so I got certified to be a life coach. And so I have been incorporating that in my teaching and in coaching individual women. And I'm using all that's happened in my past to influence my present, to help people move forward to a bright future. And isn't that what God calls us all to do? That's what he wants all of us to do. It looks just different for each other. Well, and so having then come here and um, working here, there was someone I worked with uh, when I was in education and she, her husband had a friend and they got together and said, these two need to meet. So I got a call from Samantha Church says, I have the man for you. <laughs> and so then he called Larry and said, I have the girl for you. Well, we were both doubtful, but eventually I got a call from a man named Larry Baker. And so he said, would you like to go to dinner? I don't know if I'm ready for that. You know, things happen. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. So I eventually agreed. So he came to pick me up while I had sister at the house um, because I needed that support and encouragement. We all need somebody to help us through these things, don't we? And so sister looked out the window just to make sure it was going to all be okay. Because anything could happen. I could have sent her to the door and sent him away. I mean, anything. We were ready, weren't we? We were ready to do whatever we needed to do. And so she said, it's going to be okay. <laughs> she could see he had on some nice dress pants and he had on some good-looking shoes that were all polished. And so we thought this will be okay. So now let me tell you this little side story. So what he had decided that I did not know then, he was going to take me to restaurant A 
if it wasn't going to be a good night, you could tell by the time we got to the end of the road, he was going to take me to restaurant B, and it looked like there was going to be a nice conversational evening. So we went to restaurant B. By the time we got to the end of the road, he thought this might be and so we took a long drive. We went up Mon Eagle Mountain, and we ate at that nice restaurant called, I think it's Highwood, up there. And we had a wonderful time and drove around, and we just hit it off so well. And do you know, I got back home, and I went to my bedroom, and I cried like a baby. I said, I'm not supposed to be having fun. You see how life is so messy? You're supposed to have fun, or you're not supposed to have fun? And I decided that by the time the next Tuesday came and he called me again for the next Saturday, then I would just give it another try. And then he did the same thing the next Tuesday and he called for the next Saturday and we went out again. See, he was such a gentleman. He called on Tuesday and we went out Saturday and every Saturday we got in the car and we just drove. We drove all over. And do you know for six months I did not know anything about him except this side of his face. <laughs> in love. And do you know that 10 years later we got married? <laughs> it takes some people a while. Well, I got a blended family again, you know. And so I have his, his daughter, is, uh, she lives in Hendersonville, and we have Courtney, our 15-year-old granddaughter, and then I have my son and his wife and two kids, and they're Stella and Will, and they live in Cincinnati because my husband took a, a promotion and that took him out of town, and he decided to take his wife and my children, the grandchildren, with him. And so they're there, and then I have a son here, and we have his wife and two little boys, and I have my sister and her family, and they're like my kids as well. And uh, my brother and his children, uh, my brother's children live here, and we're all, all close. Our mom is here, and, and our life is in a stable, wonderful place. It's not without hard times, and it's not without heartache. But we know that with what we've been through, we can get through it together. You know, the final D I want to emphasize is deliverance. God will deliver us from our issues, from our past, from all the hang-ups we have. He wants us to have faith in Him. He wants us to use our resources to hold on to hope. God wants us to, live, to deliver us, but we have to do our part. We have to take those steps. If we stay t stuck in our pits, in our sadness, and in our bitterness, in our, our lack of forgiveness, or, or our regret, or our doubt, or our anger, or any emotion that keeps us stuck, we are not allowing God's beautiful grace and mercy and love and hope to work through us. Those are the things He died to give us. He wants to resurrect us. He wants to redeem us. And He wants us to take us from our darkness into the light. So if you're in the middle of your own D, I encourage you to call on Him and call on His beautiful witnesses to walk alongside you. Amen.